Good morning. I'm encouraged this morning uh, because many times, uh, I think Michael uh, Fay asked me before service, hey, I'm going to mention this uh, during worship. Are you going the same direction? I said, you nailed it. That's exactly what I'm talking about. In Dan's prayer, he said the words rock solid. The title of this sermon this morning is Rock Solid Love. So I feel like in, in, in everyone that was saying hello and greeting one another and still going well into Dan's announcements because you all love each other so much. It's nice when I have an easy job. This is a t-ball. I just get to hit it home, home run. Uh, I feel like this is something we're living currently as a church. Uh, it's something that um, we're all kind of in the same spirit. So as we go in uh, to First Peter, to close chapter uh, one today of First Peter, uh, I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to share uh, the word of the Lord with you today. Uh, my name is Jesse. I'm the director of student ministries here. Um, so uh, we're going to have fun because I'm the youth pastor. And youth pastors have fun. It's time to play games, everybody. Let's go. Who brought snacks? Let's have a fun time. Um, so today we're going to finish uh, the first uh, first chapter of First Peter. Uh, so if you have the Bibles that are in the seats around you, that's on page 1,728. 1,728 if you're using the Bibles that are in the seats around you. First uh, Peter is right before Second Peter. So that's also helpful. Uh, so if you get to Second Peter, just go back and you'll read First Peter. For chapter 1, today we'll read verses 22. Uh, through 25, um, and we'll read that here in just a moment. I think one thing that a lot of people, have, a lot of us who are lived, who are adults, uh, can agree on is that we look at the world around us, society around us, and it seems like it's becoming a little less personal than it used to be. That, that being personal uh, with each other is being substituted by technology, right? Things that are virtual in a lot of ways. We're becoming really good at communicating online. But there's a one-on-one, eye-to-eye, person-to-person contact and relating that we're starting to lose some of that. I've noticed it just since I was a kid. How quickly, how long we've become. I'm, I'm 36 years old and I remember a time before the internet which I know that makes me sound old to my youth group. But I remember a time before the internet. And it feels like even just within the last 20 years, we're losing some of that personal relationship, that that one-on-one, eye-to-eye contact. It feels like we're losing some of that. Today, when you say I'm a friend with somebody, it doesn't really mean the same thing that it used to be. How many of you guys have friends on Facebook that you really have no idea what's going on in their life, but you're their friend, right? We have friends that we're not really friends with. The meaning of that word means something different than it used to. To like somebody today or to like something that someone says doesn't mean the same thing. You can like somebody's Instagram post. You can follow someone today. It doesn't mean the same thing as being a follower as it used to be. When we read about the disciples were followers of Jesus, they didn't just like his Twitter uh, page. They didn't just follow him on social media. They actually followed him. The word follower is means something different today than it used to be, right? The words are changing. And the truth is we could have hundreds of friends and thousands of friends and followers and likes and not actually ever be close to anybody. And all that technology, it's making an impact and there's, there's a consequence to it in the way that we live our lives and the world that we live in today because that's where we are. Uh, in studying for our youth uh, teaching that we're having in the next couple of weeks. I was reading even that they were taking polls of 
um, about loneliness and how people interact with people socially and what their lives are like and what their friends, uh, friend circles are like. And the reports that they came back with were the most lonely people, the, most pe- the people that said they felt the most isolated were people under 30 that considered themselves big on social media, that considered themselves influencers, that considered themselves plugged in and communi- into a community, that those people that were under 30 and big in social media were the ones who said they were most alone. You want a perfect real-world example? Have you ever been to a coffee shop recently during the middle of the day? I go there often. Uh, it's, uh, you know, if you want to ever have a meeting with me, it's, it's not a surprise when I say, let's go meet at the coffee shop, right? It's a great place to meet. And yet, because I go to coffee shops often, I see that coffee shops have become this place where people go to be alone together. They go to be alone together. The coffee shop's full of individual people sitting at individual tables with their headphones in, staring at their screens, and sipping their coffee. They're in a room full of people, and yet every single person is isolated, and by itself, they're alone together. Kind of an oxymoron in and of itself, alone together. And yet here we are. It's the world we live in. And at the risk of my youth group saying, okay, boomer, (laughs) I remember when social networking was called going outside and riding your bike. Making friends was not just clicking a button, right? It was going and playing and seeing another guy riding a bike and throwing rocks at the abandoned house or whatever, you know. What, we did all that stuff. Five miles of school uphill both ways and 10 foot of snow, that was me, right? That's all of it. But it used to mean something different. And as we read in First Peter, in the last few verses of First Peter, there is one thing that we as a church ought to be good at And that is loving each other in a very personal and real and deep and fervent way. Not just the online surface level kind of way, but a deep and flourishing love. There's one place that love should flourish. It ought to be in the body of Christ in a world of people that are isolated. We read in Psalm 68 that we have a God. God is described as someone who is a father to the fatherless and he puts the lonely into families. As the body of Christ, we have a God that takes the isolated, that person who is alone and solitary and he brings them into a family. He brings them, he adopts them and he gives them a new reality. No computer or social networking cannot do what God can do and that's where God uses real people. He uses the church And our love as a church should flourish to the world around us. And with that in mind, we'll read the last few verses of chapter 1 in 1 Peter, beginning in verse 22. And I'll read through 25. In the word of the Lord. It says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply and from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So I want us to see something as we start out in those verses, that the core, I want us to notice there's a core thing that everyone foc- everything focuses in the whole paragraph. In all of First Peter, there's two phrases that everything kind of focuses and it, and it, and it, and it 
that's the core of this passage. It's in verse 22 where it talks about a sincere love for your brothers. We'll make that the core. Everything else revolves around the thought of sincere love for the brothers and the command that follows to love one another deeply from the heart. From the heart or fervently, some translations would say. Everything that we're going to read and go over is connected to those thoughts. I'd like to take a quick look at where we've been. For those who haven't been with us through the whole study of 1 Peter, I'll take a quick look at where we've been so that we can see where we are now today. So Peter sits down and he's writing to a group of young believers that are struggling. He sits down to pen 1 Peter to that group of individuals. And what he tells them is, you've been picked by God, you've been selected by God, you've been brought on the same team. He says that you are elect, you've been chosen. That's verses 1 and 2. He says, once you've been selected by God, he's given you a living hope because of a resurrected Christ. That's verse 3. That living hope gets better and better all the way into heaven where it is reserved for you. It is incorruptible and it will not fade away. That's verses 4 and verses 5. And he says, so that even though now you may struggle and you go through trials now and you may not be able to see God clearly at the current moment, that's verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. He says, you have what the prophets predicted you would have, what preachers proclaimed you have, and what angels ponder over. That's verses 10, 11, and 12. And then Peter says, therefore, he says, now, therefore, you and I ought to live holy lives and be obedient to God because he's redeemed us at an incredible price. The price was the precious blood of his son. And that's verses 13 through 21. And now here we are in 22. He caps it all off. He ends chapter one by saying, he's talking about the sincere love, a brotherly love. And we'll read how it's a love that's accepting, a love that's healing. It's a love that's genuine to your brothers and sisters. He ends it. I kind of look at it like this, as what, what Peter is kind of saying to us in chapter 22, or in, in chapter 1 and verse 22. He talks about now that you've been saved, right? He's talked about the price of our salvation, what it cost Christ and what we've been brought into. And he says, now that you've been saved, this is kind of entry-level Christianity, right? You love each other, right? I think Dan mentioned it, those who are loved, those who loved are loved by God, or those who love God love others, right? Uh, that this, by this, they will know you're my disciples if you love one another. It happens when you get saved. You love each other. I think of it like when I played basketball growing up, the coach, every single week, no matter how many years I played basketball, we always did the basic drills, and it would drive me crazy. We're gonna do bounce passes for 20 minutes. Why? I've been playing basketball for seven years. I don't need to do bounce passes, coach. We're going to do layup drills. We're going to practice our free throws. We're going to do the basics, right? And what is it in the heat of the game that our coach would yell at us? When we were falling apart and my team didn't know what to do, what would my coach yell at us? The basics. Bend to the knees, hands up, right? Crash the boards. Those things that we would do repeatedly time and time again, he would yell those basics at us. In the heat of the moment, that's what we needed, right? When I was in the Navy, we did so much training, training for everything over and over and over and over again. And in the heat of the moment, what would people yell at you? Remember your training. It's the basic thing. It's the most, it's the basic level. It's necessary. When you become a Christian, 
you love your brothers. That is a necessary part of being a follower of Christ. I'll try to keep the sports references to a low, but football season has started, and so it's kind of, you know, in the air right now. Um, But Vince Lombardi was a very famous uh, coach for the Green Bay uh, Packers. We'll forgive him for that. Um, But he was a coach, very famous, and when he was asked what the secret to his success was, what's a winning team look like, he mentions a couple things. He says, you know, fundamentals are important. Discipline is important. But the thing that he says is surprising is this. He says after they have the basics and the discipline, the men need to care and love for each other. He says the difference between mediocrity and greatness is the feeling that these guys have love for each other. He said when you have a team that loves each other, that's when you have a winning team. And so as we read 1 Peter, we're going to go over four basic things instructions on how that we as a church can be a winning team that loves the world around us the way that God has called us to love them. As believers, I want to look at four aspects of Christian love. And those four things, if you're a note taker, don't worry, we're going to go over them, but I'm going to let you know what they are now and I'll put them up on the screen in here a minute. First one is going to be demonstrating your freedom or loving from freedom. Celebrating your personal or your spiritual family that we are to radiate love and loyalty to those around us, and that we are to cultivate and a dependence on Scripture. So all four of these things we're going to see, and let's look back at verse 22 where the paragraph begins. He says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, that's how he begins. Let's unravel that a bit. <coughs> I'm so sorry, I don't want to be that person. Can I get some water? I'm getting over some really bad fall allergies and I'm feeling it right now. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for loving me well. Um, he says, he's, he says um, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for your brothers. It helps sometimes to take a look and step back and look at the vocabulary. He says, you've purified yourselves. It talks about something that happened in the past and yet we see that it has a continuing result. You have purified yourselves And then something happens because of that. I have allergies, so I have dry mouth and cough. Something happened that influences my current state. And that's what he's talking about here. You have been purified in obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Something that happened in the past makes a difference now. Like I said, it's entry-level Christianity, basics. You've been saved You have been saved, and now that you have the capability of loving because you've been saved, you now have a love for your brothers and sisters. Simply put, the first reason that we love should be evident, that love should be evident among us is because you are a saved person. Love should be evident in your life because you're saved. You should love because you're saved, and the fruit of salvation, right? One of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is love. You are saved, you've been set free, it is for freedom that you, have been fr- that you are free, right? You are now living a life of salvation and freedom that should produce love. It should be evident in your life. I'm going to remember to do this. That's our big idea. Did I pass that? Guys, I'm sorry, I'm not good, I'm not good at uh, remembering to do uh, slides. Here's our big idea for the day. God's love should cause our love for others to flourish. 
And with that, the first point that we talked about, demonstrating your freedom. How do we demonstrate our freedom? When Christ has come into our hearts, when he has made us new, when he took someone that was lost and outside the family and adopted him and gave him a new name and put him in the family, what should be evidence of that? That from that freedom, we demonstrate our freedom by loving others. We love from a place of freedom. That's how we demonstrate it. It's the basics. It's the entry level. And there's a lot of scriptures, and we don't have time to chase them all down, but there's a lot of scriptures, especially in the New Testament, that are filled with commandments to love each other. The most famous probably are from Jesus himself. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. For this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. That's a powerful statement. You prove that you're saved by the way that you love each other. Paul, or Peter, I'm gonna say that a lot. I've been doing that all week. I keep saying Paul, but it sounds so much like Paul. Peter is saying here, you're saved. Now love your brothers, right? It, it happens. That's a natural thing. Before I was on staff at Encounter, we were in YWAM for several years. And I remember one time in a trip to Peru, we were in a town called Iquitos. Fun to say. Uh, Iquitos. And in Iquitos, uh, it's a small town in the middle of the Amazon jungle. There's only one way in, and that's plain. There's no roads that get there, and that's where we were. And my friend Drew and I were out one day, and we went to this uh, local restaurant because it was like one of the only places in town that you could find that had ice cream, and it was really hot. And so we loved going to this place. And we go to this place, and we meet uh, this guy who was trying to get home. He was talking to people around, asking for money, trying to get help. Uh, he was an American guy. And we started talking to him, and he told us his story. And Iquitos is really famous. A lot of people go there uh, that are looking for spiritual renewal, right? They're looking to reach that next level of that spiritual zenith. There's this thing there called ayahuasca. It's a drug. It's a psychedelic thing. A lot of people go. They fly into Iquitos to go into the jungle, and they have these witch doctors give them this substance, and they experience new levels of reality, right? It's very famous, and so this guy was talking about that. He spent all of his money to go to Iquitos to find spiritual enlightenment because he's looking for truth. I just want to know truth, man. Right? He's telling us all this story. And he was, he was broken. He said, I didn't find truth. He's like, I feel like they used me. They took my money. They abused me. They got what they wanted from me, and they kicked me to the curb. He goes, I don't feel anything out of what just happened. And so we started to share the love of Christ with him. My friend Drew and I, we bought him some ice cream. We got him some food. We tried helping him out. We tried connecting him with a local church that we were working with there. He was trying to figure out a way to get back home. And so we were trying to help him get connected with the right people. We prayed with him. And at the end of our time together, he said something that was really impactful for me. He said, you know, guys, I was raised in a Christian house. He said, my mom and dad still serve in the church. And he says, I haven't thought about that for a long time. I've been running away trying to figure out my own thing. And he's like, here talking to you guys today, hearing, hearing you talk about Jesus and the way that you've unconditionally loved me. He says, you've demonstrated that maybe that's true. Maybe all the things that I learned about Jesus growing up is truth. And he said, maybe I will go to this church and connect with them. 
It was an amazing, amazing statement, yet that's the principle, right, that we're reading about here. Salvation should affect the way you relate with others. We demonstrate our freedom that Christ has given us by loving from freedom. Our salvation should affect every relationship in life. Once we've been loved, we've been set free now to love other people. Hudson Taylor is a very famous missionary to China. He put it this way, and I love this. He says, if your father and mother and sister and brother, if the very cat and dog in your house are not happier because you're a Christian, it's a question whether you really are. I hope that you all have happy cats and dogs in your home. Notice what it says in verse 22. What kind of love for the brothers that we're supposed to have? Sincere. Sincere love. It means it's real. It's the real deal. It's not fake. It's real. Now, Dan can help me with this. But the Greek, thank you, Google, for helping me with this. The Greek in the word sincere translates to without hypocrisy, to not be phony in your love. Right? It reminds me of when Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. He says, let your love be without hypocrisy. Don't pretend to really love people. There's nothing worse than fake love. Right? We all do it. I feel like we're guilty of it. Oh, church time. Hello, brother. Right? <laughs> Can I put on the fake smile? Right? I'm at work now. Oh, hey guys. How are you? Everything's great for me. Right? But that's not good. That's not genuine. kind of like plastic fruit. My grandma had plastic fruit in a bowl growing up, and I remember looking at it, and it always looked amazing. And I would watch her dust it, and I thought that was hilarious, that she dusted a bowl of fruit, right? And now that I'm grown, and, and, I, and I've done the whole thing of putting real fruit out on the table because it looks nice, and I realize that in one day it decays and draws gnats, Plastic fruit's a great idea now that I'm grown. But I remember growing up and going to my grandma's house and seeing her dust plastic fruit and always being so tempted. It looks amazing. I remember one time I was like, I just, I'm going to take a bite. I'm going to take a bite. No one else ever took a bite of plastic fruit knowing it was plastic? Okay, that's me. Okay, that's, I'm that guy, okay? I took a bite of the apple. Just like, it, it has to taste like something. It tasted like plastic. Wax. It was disgusting. I had a mouthful of plastic and wax. It was gross. And yet that's what it's like, fake love. Oh, it looks so good on the outside, but it actually offers no nourishment. It offers nothing of value to the receiver of that thing other than looking good. You know, the word sincere, we talked about its Greek roots, but it's Latin roots. Thank you, Google, again. Sincere, it, really, it literally translates to sine sera, with, it means without wax. I speak Spanish. It also is the same thing in Spanish. Sincera, without wax. That's where it comes from. It says, let your love be without wax. What does that mean? Well, here's where it comes from. In ancient times, there were porcelain dealers and statues makers. They would make um, these beautiful statues. And when they made mistakes or they had porcelain dishes and they cracked them or they, or they broke them or chipped them or anything like that, they would take wax to fix their mistakes. And so these statues, imagine spending hours and days sculpting a statue for someone and all of your work in just a moment with the wrong hit of the chisel, the nose falls off. What do you do, start over? 
Well, a lot of people would take wax. Some of these sculptors would take wax and some of the marble dust, and they would mix them together and put it on the nose and the dust with the wax and the dust. It looked like it was part of the statue. And the porcelain dealers would do the same. They had this expensive porcelain with scratches and chips in it. They would take wax to fill it in. And so the way that they would determine whether it was good quality or not is if it had wax or not. Sine sera. And so when somebody had a statue or porcelain that was perfect and didn't have mistakes, they would say, hey, this is sine sera. This is without wax. It's the real deal. And the way that they would test it is they would hold it up to the light. They would take flames to the statue, right? You have a a marble statue or a bust of somebody. It's completed. They would hold flames to it to see if anything melted off. Imagine being that guy that says, hey, look, I made this statue for you. And they hold flames to it and the nose falls off, right? And they would say when it was the real deal, they would say it was without wax, sine sera. It's the real deal. That's where we get the word sincere from. It's a kind of love that when it's held to the heat, it holds up. It doesn't fall apart. When you hold it up to the light, you see that it's true, that it's genuine, that it's not full of fakeness. Insincere love is when you feel, fill your love with cheap substitutes. You pay somebody a compliment and you don't really mean it. You're not really trying to encourage them. Maybe you're just trying to manipulate them or make them feel good or get on their good side or get something from them, butter them up. We've all been guilty of that. It's insincere love. There's a great preacher, as they say back in the day, named Matthew Henry, and he put it this way. Hypocrisy is to do the devil's work in God's uniform. Think about the disciples, the 12 apostles. Who was the one who had insincere love, would you say? It's an easy answer. Judas, right? He was the guy that when the woman poured oil on Jesus to anoint him in the house, he spoke up and he said, wait, this could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. And you read that and you're like, man, that sounds like he loves the poor. Judas really loves the poor. But he doesn't. It's insincere. It's full of wax, right? It's dripping in wax because John tells us, by the way, he didn't really care for the poor. He was a thief and he wanted to take some of the money for himself. He said something that sounded loving and yet it was insincere. Let our love be without hypocrisy. Make sure it's sincere, real, not fake, not phony. The real deal because real love, when we love with the love that God has given us, It'll heal people's hearts. So we're to demonstrate our freedom and love from a place of freedom. And the second thing, second directive, is to celebrate our spiritual family. We're to celebrate our spiritual family. The word in verse 22, you can look at verse 22 where it talks about our brothers. Some translations say brethren. is our brother or sister. It's a family word. We are in a spiritual family. And in the verse 23 where it says, you have been born again. What happens when you're born? You become part of a family. These are family words that Peter's using. You're in a spiritual family because you've had a spiritual birth. The basis of our unity, the real basis of our loving unity is our birth. Not our first birth, but our second birth into God's family. We're in the same family. When we've 
When we have called on Christ to be saved, we're in the same family. We call on the same Heavenly Father. We trust in the same Savior. We have the same Holy Spirit living inside of us. We all come to salvation the exact same way by trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. All of us here come to Christ the same way. We are in the same family. You guys know the very famous saying, blood is thicker than, blood is thicker than water, right? Simply put, what that means, the statement of blood is thicker than water, is you can mess up, you can fall down, you can fail, but hey, we're blood. We're in this together. I got your back. You're my family. We're gonna get through this because we are family and blood is thicker than water. And well, Peter has already said that we've been redeemed and brought into the family by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb without blemish and without spot. How much greater is our bond as a family when it's not just our blood that makes us family, but the blood of the lamb that makes us family? We have each other's back. It means, like in real life, we let family get away with things we wouldn't let other people get away with because they're family, right? We often will long suffer with someone because they're a family member. I let people in my family get away with, like, if I tell my kids, pick your socks off the floor. Don't leave your socks on the floor. You always leave your socks on the floor. What are you doing? And if Dan came over to my house and he left his socks on the floor, I'm, I'm giving him one pass. <laughs> I say, Brother Dan, I love you. One, please keep your socks on in my house. <laughs> Two, please don't leave them in the middle of the floor, right? I, but with my kids, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them a hundred million times before they do it, right? Dan, you get one pass. But my kids, they get a lot of passes, right? Because they're my family, right? I'm gonna put up with it. And that's what we're called. We're called a part of the family. And we recognize that. We're part of the family. The, the, the woman sitting next to you is your sister. The man sitting next to you is your brother in Christ. Some of us are really messed up, but that's family. We love each other in spite of the mess. That's real family love. There's a story I was told of a psychiatrist who came home from work and had a really long and tough day talking to patients that were full of problems. He goes home to his wife and he tells his wife, honey, I've had the worst day, the longest, most painful day. I've heard problem after problem after problem after problem and I cannot hear any more bad news. Sweetheart, whatever you do, don't tell me any bad news today. I just want good news. And so the wife thinks for a second, and she says, okay, hon, I have some good news. Two of our three kids did not break an arm today. <laughs> right, sometimes as family, we have to say things that are difficult to one another. Give news that we don't want to give or that's difficult to give, and yet we find ways to do it that are loving. Why? Because you're my brother. You're my sister. I'm going to do what it takes to love you the best way that I possibly can. I'm going to find the way to love you deeply and fervently. I'm going to find a way to love you sacrificially. Sorry, guys. Lost my spot. Here we are. So the third, so we love each other as family. We celebrate your spiritual family, which means I'm with you, I got your back, because we are in this together. 
We have the same Father that adopted us. The third directive that we have here that we read, there it is. We are to radiate a mutual love and loyalty. Radiate a mutual love and loyalty. The first one was to demonstrate our freedom by loving from that place of freedom, celebrating our spiritual family. I have your back no matter what because we have the same Father, the same God that adopted us. We're in this together. And third is to radiate a mutual loyalty. That brings us back to verse 22, the command that's written in the text that everything revolves around that we talked about to love one another deeply and from the heart. Some translations say fervently with a pure heart. Now here's what I want us to notice, and this is important. It's an imperative, right? It's a command. It is do this thing. We're told to love each other, right? It's not a suggestion. It's given as an imperative. It's a command that is given. Peter is writing, I'm commanding you to love each other deeply from the heart. Deeply from the heart. Now, how do you do that? How do you command someone to love someone genuinely? Right? Imagine if when I was dating Karina on our first date, I look at her and I say, Karina, I command you to love me genuinely. But like, like from the heart, fervently, I command you. Right? But we see that in these, cha- in these verses, there's two different words for love that are used. It says, now that, you've been, that now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, right? We've obeyed the truth. We put our hope in Christ. What happens out of that? We have a sincere love for our brothers. And that first time that love is used, it's Philadelphia. It's like a brotherly, a family love, which we've talked about. And then he gives a command. The second time, love one another. It's a different word for love that's used. See, English, we read love twice, but we miss out on something. Because what Peter says is love each other as brothers. There's brotherly love. And he says, because you've been brought into the kingdom, you've been made a family, you love your brothers. And I also command you to love each other with agape love. Agape love is divine. It's sacrificial. It's the way that God loves. Since you have already loved each other as brothers, now I am commanding you, love like God loves. The way that God loves is sacrificial. It's divine. It's deep from the heart. And so we share this first kind of love, the Philadelphia love, because we're brothers and sisters, and we share the second kind of love because he commands us. It's an act of our will, even though we don't feel like it, right? The key word that we see here is that deeply, to love one another deeply or fervently. When you look up the word fervent, some translations say to love each other fervently, you get this idea that it is, you're, you're, you are committed you are going to be a part of this thing, right? Someone who fervently goes to the gym to work out, they're there. They're putting their muscles to the limit, right? They're stretching themselves to the limit. They're going to where their capacity so they can grow, right? You wouldn't call somebody who has no discipline, like, oh yeah, I'm a very disciplined athlete and I only practice once every two months. I'm not a fervent athlete. I'm not a fervent player of that sport. To show fervency and to do something deeply, you're all in. Right? You're working it out. You're pushing yourself to the limits of that thing so that you grow in that thing. And just like a sport or just like working on a golf swing or trying to lift more weights in the gym, it takes practice. It takes fervency. It takes being deeply committed to that thing. 
And so we're called to love that way, to stretch out our love as far as it'll go. That it graciously forgives and blesses and heals as we love people. You see, love is something we gotta work on. See, the world would tell you, no, love is just a warm feeling. But agape love is an act of the will. You have to work on it. You have to commit yourself to it. So we too are to work on loving each other, even when it's difficult. Treating people the way that God would treat them. It's an act of our will, not a feeling that we have. We decide to show people, we decide to show love to people even when we've been hurt by that person. This is the kind of love that God gives, isn't it? I feel like this is the best reflection of God's love, to demonstrate love to somebody who has hurt us. I mean, wouldn't that most reflect God's love? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and that world killed him. (laughs) And that world killed him, and yet God loved them so much, even though while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's agape love. I was with a friend recently um, having coffee and he was telling me about his kindergartner and she's four years old or five, four or five years old and he was telling me that he said, man, Jesse, the, the most amazing thing happened last week. He said, my daughter, she came home from kindergarten and they had chapel that morning and she told me, daddy, there was a song in worship that was so beautiful it made me cry. And he looked at his daughter and he was like, oh, that's beautiful, honey. What did the song say? She said, I don't know. <laughs> she said, and, then, and then he said, well, what, what was it talking about? What made you cry? And he starts kind of unpacking it with her, right? And she says, well, it's talking about how much God loves us and how much God loves everybody. And, she, and, and so he starts kind of like walking through this with her, right? Because he doesn't want to let this moment pass. This beautiful moment of a song and worship made me cry. And so he starts unpacking it and she says, God loves me. And they get to this place where they're having this conversation of God even loves That boy in my class that hit me in the face, right? The bully that we have in our class that I have problems with every week. And she starts having this revelation of God's love. She's talking with her dad about this worship song that talk about God's love. And she realizes in this moment that God even loves the bully, right? That's agape love. And so he has this conversation with her and he says, now if God loves that guy that hit you in the face, do you think you should love him? Yeah, daddy, I do. She was having this revelation of what this kind of love looks like. That even though someone hurts us or is difficult, it's not a matter of my feelings, it's a matter of my will. I am gonna choose to love them. I am going to love them where they are because God loved me where I was in my sin. He sent his only son for me in that moment. It's a revelation of agape love. So many times the Bible says, I think sometimes we can think, well, I love people enough. I'm a Christian. I I love people all the time. Yet scripture tells us, Philippians, I pray that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment. Thessalonians talked about it, right? May the Lord of love increase and overflow. So it's something that you grow in. It's something that you don't arrive in, right? Your, your amount of love for each other, it doesn't have an end. It keeps growing. What's our limit to love? 
What's your capacity? Do you have an end? Do we have a certain point as humans where we go, you know what, I'm all done. I can't love anymore. Well, the answer to that is that we have unlimited capacity. Not because we are great, but because God is great. Romans chapter 5 says, For the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's poured out. Does God ever run out of love? Does the Holy Spirit ever run out of love? When he's giving love to us, does it ever run out? So if our cup is always being filled by the Lord with love that we can give to others, will we ever run dry? No. So we can say, I'm done, I can't do this anymore, and yet God will keep filling it up. We have an infinite capacity to love others because God has an infinite capacity to give us the love that we need so that we can love each other. Fourth imperative is that we are to cultivate a dependency on Scripture. Cultivate a dependence on Scripture. Now watch this. Verse 23 and 24, they begin with four. Or some translations, therefore. Or other translations, or because. See, verses 23 and 24 is as a result of this thing that we just talked about, therefore, this. Right? So because of what we just talked about, now something happens. For you have not been, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. If you're going to grow in love, if you're going to be nourished in your love, this book right here, the Bible, this is love food. This is what fuels our love. Scripture, the word of God, it nourishes love. This book, the scripture, it reveals how to love. It reveals a God who loves. For God so loved the world. It tells us not only to love, but how to do or how to love in our marriages, in our friendships, with our children, in respecting our parents. It talks about romantic love. It's all here. How to love. This is our source. This is our fountain. Here's the point that Peter's making. God's word was preached to us and it gave us life. It was imperishable, incorruptible seed. It's eternal. It does not have an end. So that seed that was planted in our heart, it germinated and it brought forth what? Fruit. Galatians 5. What is, some of the, what is one of the fruits that we talk about that when we've received Christ, we have fruit that is given off in our lives now? Love. One of the fruits of the Spirit is love. We have received this imperishable forever word and it has caused fruit to grow in our life and we love out of a result of that. Here's the deal. Anytime a Bible gives us a command, which this is a command to love each other, it doesn't give us a command unless we have the capacity through God's grace to do so. God will give us the ability to do it, which even when we don't feel like loving that unlovely person, you do it anyway. Even when you don't feel like forgiving that person who was nasty to you in your life, you do it anyway. That even if you don't feel like caring for that jerk at work who's always rude, you do it anyway. Even if you don't feel like humbling yourself before a prideful person, you do it anyway. It is an act of your will. You may say, wait, time out, time out. Wait a minute. 
It says that you're supposed to do it from the heart, right? We read that in verse 22. Do it with a pure heart, not just mechanically, not just obediently, but from a pure heart. So how does that work? How are you commanded to do it from the heart, right? Like I talked about Karina, you will love me, but from the heart. Well, how do we do that? How are we commanded to love and yet do it from the heart? Well, this is how it works. If you think about your decision, your will, what I'm doing, that's like the engine of the drain. Your feelings are like the caboose, right? When you make a decision to show love, the feeling in your heart will follow. The feelings follow the act of love. I think about how many times I've taken our youth group to Appalachia on mission trips, and they go, I don't want to work with kids. I don't know how to work around kids. I don't know how to, like, I don't want to do this kind of ministry. I'm not ready for this. And day three, they're going, I love these kids. These kids are the best. I love them so much. I want to write letters to them, right? It's, it's, I'm uncertain how to do this thing. And yet I'm going to step out and walk in obedience. And I'm going to love this person even though I'm uncomfortable doing it. Man, the feelings follow. When I step out in obedience, in response to the love that God has given me, and I love someone else, even when I don't feel like it, Oh, the heart's going to follow. Love one another, it's a command. Deeply from the heart, those feelings will follow. Yes, we talked about in the beginning that society is becoming less personal and more virtual and more about technology and that there's a disconnect in relationships in the world around us. And so that means us as Christ followers need to be more intentional than ever. That we need to be that place where people experience family. That place where people that are solitary feel like they belong. We as Christ followers need to be those people who from our freedom love other people. We as Christ followers need to love deeply to love each other as brothers and so the world around us, they will know that you are my followers by this when you love one another, that the rest of the world would look at us being intentional in our lives, going out of our way to love difficult people. When they see that, they'll see Christ. When we live intentional lives of love in a world that's searching for truth and dealing with loneliness, Christian love, a love that flourishes because of God's love for us. Christian love is a love of the will. It's a love that forgives and heals and proves that we love the people around us and we love God because he loved, he forgave, he healed and he proved that he loved us by sending Jesus to die for us when we were still sinners. Because of what he did, we can reflect that to the world around us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for the love that you showed us and the truth that's revealed to us in your scripture that in implores us and commands us to love the same. God, these truths are life-changing. Help us as your church to put them into practice with the people that we say we love and the people that you place in our lives day to day. Lord, would you help us to demonstrate and to show, God, even when we feel taken advantage of, 
or hurt or used to say yes to you and to cooperate with you and your word and to extend our love to those people even further than we thought we could before. God, may we strive by your grace not to earn your love, but God, to simply prove your love to others who need it so desperately in this world. God, use us as your church to proclaim your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together.